Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. I did a thing last week. Went on Ed Morrissey, conservative columnist, on his podcast. We talked about energy policy and what the Biden administration's doing. So I thought you guys might find it interesting. So here's a copy of that from last week. Hope y'all enjoy. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition, and I am happy to introduce Chuck Yates uh, here to talk about oil and energy policy, Joe Biden's uh, new changes to those, what those mean. And uh, Chuck, first off, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I ran a private equity oil and gas fund for about 20 years, got booted in April of 2020. I, I like to say it was my fault. Oil went to minus 37. And uh, hey, it did make the Wall Street Journal, though, when I got fired. So I've got that going for me. Um, and since that time, I've been gainfully unemployed, uh, jokingly calling myself the Oprah of the oil and gas business. I do two podcasts a week, the aptly named Chuck Yates Needs a Job, and then the BDE Show, which is a weekly summary of all things going on in the energy business. So uh, Chuck Yates needs a job. And uh, so if you happen to be listening and you want Chuck Yates uh, to, to work for you, uh, Chuck, how do they reach out to you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Nimble Fatty. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, Instagram's Nimble Fatty as well. I will warn folks, if you want me to work for you, I have figured out I'm the fundamentally laziest person on the planet. So take that disclaimer with it. Well, there, talk about honesty and advertising. Maybe a little too honest, Chuck. Maybe just a tiny bit too honest, but that's <laughs> that's commendable. The, uh, I told my parents the other day I was going to move back in with them before I get another job because working just sucks. Let's cut <laughs> straight to the chase about it. <laughs> you know, my father said, uh, you know what the difference this uh, really true. He said, you know what the difference is between um, uh, humans and animals? And I said, no, he says, um, animals don't let their kids back into the nest once they've kicked them out. <laughs> and and since since I was at the moment living with my father <laughs> and shortly thereafter, my sister started living with my father when I moved out, um, I figured the man knew what he was talking about still does yeah. so yeah there you go <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the oldest of four boys and when i tried to come home uh summer after freshman year at college dad said no freaking way love you come out to eat dinner every night but no you're not living in my house anymore actually so. it worked out well for everybody it was it was it was good you know while while it was necessary right and that when it wasn't necessary it was fine but yeah no i hear you and um all right chuck so we're talking about um we were talking, I was talking with Sarah Stockner, who's running for Texas Railroad Commission, about uh, the um, Biden policy changes in um, oil and gas exploration and extraction. And, um, and you know, she covered that a little bit and said, you know, who you should talk to is Chuck Yates, because he knows, he knows much more about this uh, in, in detail. So I am here to tell, to ask you, you know, what is it that, um, 
What do you see out of Biden's new policies? It's kind of being rolled out as sort of, well, we're, we're now we're going to expand. We're going to get more production because we need more domestic production. On the other hand, it's going to be more expensive and it still looks like it's fairly restricted um, as compared to, you know, two years ago. Well, you just did a much better job of articulating a policy than I think the Biden administration has done. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I always hate when guests come on and they don't disclose their political leanings. So I think in right. fairness, let me uh, do that. If you knew me in high school and college, you probably said I was a right wing Republican and that was probably fair. I think over time I've morphed into a bleeding heart liberal that's just terrified of the government. So very much kind of libertarian leadings. Um, let me do one thing. This is going to take us a little bit off the track, but I sure. think it's helpful to put some framework on. If you look back at oil and gas extraction and you go back to 2000, we have George Bush as president. And let's not get into heavy duty debate on politics, but you could say one of our more conservative presidents we've ever right. had. Natural gas prices go really high. So what does the industry do? Because nothing cures high natural gas prices like high natural gas prices. We unleash technology, horizontal drilling, fracking, and basically we create a lot more natural gas. That's how markets work. And the Bush administration policy on that was pretty simple. We're the federal government. We're not going to do anything about it. We're going to let the states regulate it. Texas, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, you guys deal with this. EPA stand down, right? As you would think a conservative Republican would handle things. What was interesting is when 2008 rolls around and we have Obama as president, who, again, let's not get into politics too deep, but you could say one of our more liberal presidents that sure. we've ever had. The policy, believe it or not, stayed the same because at the end of the day, maybe the Obama administration, EPA was slightly tougher on oil and gas folks, but for the most part, they left it to the states as well. And why they did is because oil and gas accounted for 15% of the S&P 500, lots of jobs, lots of union jobs. And so you had both ends of the spectrum saying, states, you deal with this, us at the federal government aren't gonna touch it. Well, what happened is product prices crashed in uh, Thanksgiving of 2014. Some reporter quoted me this week as saying, normally on Thanksgiving day, I'm face down in pumpkin pie because my Dallas Cowboys lost. <laughs> 2014, OPEC not cutting oil production, causing oil prices to drop $15 in one day, I'm face down. But when you had that happen, basically energy, oil and gas drifted to a much smaller percent of the S&P 500. We lost a ton of money in the shale revolution. There was a lot of external capital that came in. The Deloitte and Touche estimate is that $500 billion was incinerated. So we basically had the red problem in that we lost a lot of money. We were unimportant, unimportant to any sort of index, meaning if you're a, a pension fund manager of some sort, you could ignore energy if you want. And then lo and behold, the green problem, i.e. the environmentalist uh, movement, right. their attacks on oil and gas, were able to take over because we were no longer important. And so I kind of just give you too much, more than you wanted to hear, but that kind of frames up 
how we got to where we are right now. So starting with kind of post COVID, there's no external capital available for oil and gas. And that was of our own doing. That right. was the red problem. We lost money. And so now that you've had quarantines over, demand for oil and gas has gone back up. You've seen product prices rise. Now we're having the Biden problem because at the end of the day, if you want to bring prices down, you got to add more supply. And the problem, I think, to kind of summarize Biden, and then I'll we can get into specifics, but to summarize Biden is you just don't know where the guy stands. And if you think about it in life, in investing, uncertainty is really bad, right? I right. mean, and so we have no idea as an industry where this guy stands, where the administration stands, what kind of policies, and they want us to go drill a $10 million well that'll take five to seven years to get our money back as well as generate some sort of return. And they want us to trust them that they're not going to put in a windfall profits tax, that they're not going to take our leases away, et cetera, put in new environmental regulations. So it's just been really tough for the industry to generate any kind of activity. Well, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, regulatory uncertainty is is a huge problem, and not just in the oil and natural gas industry, of course, but but certainly there. And you touched on something, and, and I brought it up when I was talking with Sarah about this too, which is that when you listen to the rhetoric that's coming from the Biden administration, and by the way, I would I would also say that you've characterized the past politics pretty fairly, I'd say. So, yeah. I, I, I'm I'm very I, I'm very much in tune with your with your definitions on that. So, um, but when you listen to the, the the people in the administration talk, they talk as though uh, the oil and natural gas industry is some sort of monolithic organization that has you know hundreds of billions of dollars of capital at its fingertips, and that is not the industry. The industry is a number of s much smaller organizations that don't have that type of capital your point especially after after the um the crash that took place that most of the capital evaporated anyway and doesn't have a lot of prospects for getting investors to come in and so when you hear about well they made billions of dollars of profit um they it also ignores the fact that they spent billions of dollars to get that billions of dollars which you know the, the margins in this industry are not large they're much smaller than say the computer industry, the telecommunications industry, this is a narrow margin business. So when you don't have that, when you don't have that capital for investment, you simply aren't going to get drilling, even if the regulatory um, environment was stable, which as you point out, it's not. No, I think that's a, a really good point. Um, if you look at it and you kind of and you kind of frame it up, it's really external capital versus internal capital is the way to think about it. And I'm going to make a statement here that's an overgeneralization, but I think it bears saying is if unless you have external capital, the United States cannot increase oil production. Yep. That That's just a fact. And I say this too, because of the shocking lack of education about the energy business out there, one of the key defining characteristics of an oil well is it's a depleting asset. It produces less today than it produced yesterday. Tomorrow it's gonna to produce less than it produced today. 
And so if you want to grow production in the United States, you have to replace the production that you produce today as well as add to it. And the only way to add to it is to drill horizontally and to frack a well. And it's ridiculous. I saw a, a representative member of the House say the other day, you know, these companies could just turn on more gasoline and not have to do that drilling and fracking stuff to get it. And I was, right. we, we, uh, we jokingly end the one of my podcasts, the BDE show with the finger of the week each week. And we were toying, <laughs> we were toying, do we give her the finger of the week or do we name her the geologist of all time? Cause she has found gasoline without having to drill or frack. It's pretty amazing. You just have to, you just have to turn on the tap. Yeah. I mean, exactly. it's, just, it's what, what did Ross Perot say uh, about Arkansas when he was running against Clinton? You know, Arkansas is just a little state. You grab it by the ears and you just fix it. I think that's what people think oil and gas companies do to create yeah. more production. You know, and it's it's already a business with inherent risk. And I remember um, sitting down with um, some uh, folks from one of the industry's councils. I forget which one it was. And they were, we were, it was regarding offshore drilling. I remember it being about offshore drilling because the costs were a lot higher, right? It was something like $80 million to sink a well, and you have to drill three to get to one that actually produces. So by the time you get done with, um, you know, with getting one producing well, you've already spent a quarter of a billion dollars just up front. And that type of, that type of investment requires a huge amount of capital. And that was an improvement, <clears throat> as they were telling me, that was an improvement over years past where because the geology is improved and they're able to they're able to uh, do better at, at targeting, um, where it might have taken, you know, 10, 10 wells to get to one that really produces uh, to, to a profitable level and, and, and it stays steady. So, you know, we're talking about on land, you're sinking $10 million into that. I mean, it's less expensive than going offshore, but... Um, you're you're still sinking a lot of money into that, and my guess is that you're probably at the same ratio, right? Maybe two wells, three wells, four wells before you get to one that that really is productive. Well, I think what's interesting, what happened during the shale revolution, is we basically shale is a formation that's very tight, and to for an oil well to produce, you need two things: porosity and permeability. Porosity is the space in between a rock where the oil stored. So think like marbles in a jar, you know how you can yep. put water in there? That's porosity, right? Permeability is the ability of the oil to flow through the sand. And so if you think about the beach and you, a wave comes up and you know how the water kind of runs through the sand, that's very permeable, fine sand. That makes a great producing well. And we have a lot of sand like that in the United States that holds oil the only problem is we produced that back in the early 1900s, and that's why we won World War II and World War II, uh, World War II because of our oil production from those very permeable sands. So the stuff today that we can get oil out of the shale is tight. Think like the sidewalk. So you literally have to go rubbleize it to be able to get the oil out. And quite frankly, what we've done over the last, call it 10 to 12 years, is we have hit all of the shales in the United States with a really big hammer. And we've defined where we can drill and get oil and where we can't. And we have a lot fewer places where we can drill and get oil than people realize. And so when you look at the price of oil today, 
it's a hundred dollars a barrel but when you go out to late 2025 on the futures curve the price of oil is call it 72 73 dollars a barrel we're in for a rude awakening if we really think in three or four years we're going to be able to buy a barrel of oil for 72 or 73 dollars it's going to be a lot higher and why i bring this up is if we don't have proactive regulations today to encourage more drilling we're going to be in a lot of trouble in three or four years because this you just can't turn this on overnight we've got to get employees you know that when oil hit minus 37 i'm the poster boy for it we fired a lot of employees in this uh in this industry and guess what they don't want to come back right (laughs) right if they get a job doing construction in tampa why go out to west texas no offense to my friends in midland texas but (laughs) why do it we can't get steel we need tubulars we need equipment to be able to do it and so that's why it really bothers me when biden comes into your office and he cancels the keystone pipeline and everybody on the left makes the case of well we don't really need it the canadian oil can get here uh via railway thank you warren buffett but at the end of the day it's like okay that's great in six or seven years when we need that oil guess what we're going to be saying we wish we would have built that pipeline and i think I think that's the biggest thing that the Biden administration is missing is these take long lead times and you got to think in five and 10 and 15 year blocks, not just 20 second blocks and, oh, we'll just release some oil from the strategic petroleum reserve and everything will be better. I mean, the SPR thing, this is a whole series of gimmicks, you know, and um, the SPR release is another gimmick. And at some point you're gonna to have to refill that because it's called the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for a reason. It's there in case of an emergency where you can't get production, but you have a critical national security need. So eventually we're gonna to have to buy oil to replace that. Um, it's They're trying to bet that the oil is gonna be cheaper down the road, but they're not implementing policies to to get to that um, cheaper production. So, so Chuck, I'm gonna ask you, um, what policies just broadly, I, I, obviously, yeah. you're not going to write statutes here, but I mean, what policies need to take place right now so that we can prepare for uh, the ability to have scalable, dynamic um, domestic production to deal with um, the shortages uh, that are going to happen in the future? So it's interesting you bring that up because literally this morning for Chuck Gates needs a job, we actually, I had eight very seasoned, intelligent, energy professionals on and we did the energy policy draft and it was a mix it was a mix of humor serious talk and we went through various things the premise was if your energies are what do you do and uh, some things that came out of it i'll get i'll give you some specifics and then i'll give you a big picture one specifics the first thing i would do is i would build a natural gas pipeline from West Virginia and Pennsylvania, where you have all the Marcellus shale gas. Let's run that to Boston, Massachusetts. Did you know we are importing 50 BCF of of liquid natural gas to service New England every year, kind of as we speak? No. And we we have it all right. I mean, how far is that? I'm from Texas, so everything seems like a seven iron and a pitching wedge away but <laughs> I mean, we could literally we could literally run natural gas 
from the Marcellus, which is kind of right there, as I said, Pennsylvania and West Virginia, up into Massachusetts. Uh, Senator Warren would no longer have to import LNG. Some of that LNG actually came from Russia, believe it or not. And what that would do is immediately we get most of that LNG liquid natural gas. We get it from Trinidad. We could send that to Europe right now. 50 BCF a year, that would be great because that would at least alleviate a little bit of the dependency on Russia. So that is right. that is number one. Number two, let's get rid of the Jones Act. The Jones Act, to oversimplify, basically says from domestic to domestic ports, you can only use a certain size ship. Let's let big ships go so that we can take oil and liquefied natural gas from Houston, Texas, over to California, and let's stop importing it from Russia. Right. So th those are kind of two specifics. I'll get a little more broad. Let's recognize that natural gas is a cleaner source of fuel, certainly more so than coal. So let's build infrastructure around that to service our needs. Um, we were joking the other day on the podcast uh, we said, you know, it's too bad nuclear energy wasn't invented yesterday because then we'd go, oh, we solved our problems right here. I was going to ask you if you guys discussed nuclear energy. I mean, it was literally the question that was running through my head when, when you brought this up. Yes. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So nuclear energy doesn't pollute. I mean, you have radioactivity that you can just pump into the middle of the of the ground and, and store. But it's great. It can be base load, meaning it can run consistently. It's not intermittent. If the sun doesn't shine, solar doesn't work. Right. So it can provide base load power, which I think is really important. It's environmentally friendly. And what's and it's interesting, scalable. I think Joe, and it's scalable too. It's very scalable, very yeah. scalable. And I think Joe Rogan put it best. When we think of all the problems we have, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, all these nuclear catastrophes. Yeah, Fukushima we had, too, yeah. Exactly. When were all those plants built? In the 70s, right? Right. right. And 60s and Joe, 70s. Yeah. And Joe Rogan's point is always, have you driven an American car from the 70s? They really sucked. So let's not hold it against <laughs> nuclear that we just sucked at building things back in the <laughs> 70s. That's not nuclear's fault. So those are kind of the, the big picture um, thing or the, the more specific things I'd say to have a good energy policy, but seriously, the biggest one we can do, and this is really important. I know I've been kidding around on here, but people die when energy prices are high. People die when we have to buy energy from authoritarian dictators. They just do. It's right. really serious. Let's drop the hyperbole. We just need to drop it and have a serious intellectual discussion on what we want to do because the environmentalist side is they need higher prices to drop demand down because they believe that demand is poisoning the planet. And that's, I, I don't know that the science is settled on it, but at least in my mind, that is, you believe that, that's great. Let's have that discussion. Let's quit throwing hyperbole back and forth at each other and have a thoughtful discussion. Because if we are going to move to a decarbonized world, we need to do it with by spending the fewest dollars we can to get to that point because we can very easily go out and spend trillions of dollars trying to get to that point, totally miss the mark, and still face the catastrophe the environmentalists think we're going to have and all be broke. So right. if, I had, if I had one thing I could do as energies are, I'd say, okay, everybody, 
drop the bullshit. Let's sit down and talk honestly about it and see if we can't find compromise to get there because this is really serious stuff. I, I, I agree with you on that. And I, I would say, look, I mean, I think we have to understand that demand's only going to increase because there's more people on the planet. There's going to be more need for energy. Even if you're finding ways to save energy, there's still going to be more need for energy. If you want to have dynamic economies that will create the innovation and the expansion of alternative energy sources, you're going to need to have that energy now. So let's decide let's expand nuclear energy because it's scalable and it's carbon free and make it safe but you know expand it greatly as a way to transition but the way that you do that is in the meantime we still need to drill we still need to um, use natural gas and oil and coal in order to power the economies that will allow for that transition to happen without having people die because we're we're being held hostage to authoritarian regimes for our energy needs. And I could get behind a, a program like that. If we were saying, look, we're going to get out of, we're going to stop using oil and natural oil anyway, because oil and coal, let's say we're going to stop using oil and coal in 30 years. And the way we're going to do that is we're really going to drill and, and, and use up what we can in order to generate the economies that are going to allow us to put nuclear power plants for our scalable electrical needs as we're transitioning our vehicles to the electrical grid and we're going to try to use solar and, and, and wind power where we can and make it as efficient as possible while we're doing that now that to me sounds like a pretty damn good plan and at least a strategy that has a coherent target in mind and one that doesn't say we're going to live in the stone age for a while until all of this stuff uh, magically transforms into a you know, in, into a reliable platform because you, that's simply not never going to happen. You need a robust economy to, to create those reliable platforms. You, you embedded two things in there that I think are really important. One, to date, not going forward, but to date, there's no such thing as transition. We've just wanted more. Right. So all the solar, all the wind has been taking care of more energy demand. I think 25 years ago, we got 79.8% of our power generation from hydrocarbons in one way, shape or form today, it's 80.1. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we have not had a transition. We've only had more and we need to recognize that. And then the second thing we have to do is we have to look at the moral case for denying somebody energy. If you want to go down the path of we're not going to generate more that's great, but your life expectancy doubles when you go from burning dung and wood to burning hydrocarbons. And we, we have to appreciate that. There's been a lot of good stuff done because of hydrocarbons. And again, that needs to be part of the discussion. What you just said, let's all sit around the table and talk about it, be thoughtful, be intellectually honest, because we got to get this right. I mean, humanity literally, I hate to be dramatic, but hangs in the balance of this and not because we're going to not because I think we're going to destroy the planet with hydrocarbons, but because, I mean, 200 million people are going to starve this summer because we don't have the uh, the fertilizer to grow enough crops. Right. I mean, yeah. is that hyperbole? No, it's probably not. So we really need to be thoughtful about this and we got to get this one right. Well, Chuck Yates. He needs a job, but he sounds like he's doing a pretty good. <laughs> sounds like he's doing a pretty good job, Chuck. Sounds like you're doing a great job right now, just doing what you're doing. Remind everybody how to find you again, and uh, 
And uh, when's your next podcast coming up? You were just talking so, about today, right? So any place you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, it's Chuck Yates needs a job. The other pod, and that's think a long format Joe Rogan, where I'll have various guests on. We talk a lot of serious energy. We talk actually a lot of mental health. For some reason, the podcast got really serious. I've had my priest on. We've talked about all the therapy I've gone through. And then we just do some dumb shit, silly stuff too. So we, <laughs> we do that. The BDE show is the weekly summary of uh, for the oil and gas or for the energy business. And uh, all of that's published by Digital Wildcatters. I'm Nimble Fatty on Twitter. That's where I spend most of my uh, most of my time embarrassing myself. And I appreciate you having me on. Well, Chuck, I appreciate you coming on because this was a great conversation. And I hope that we just can just keep in touch here and uh, touch base every once in a while and uh, update each other on on energy and more. Lots of different things. I, you know, we could talk, yeah, talk, talk about priests. <laughs> exactly. Love to have you on Chuck Yates Needs a Job at oh, some point in the near future. I'd love to do it. Yeah. Let's let's stay in touch. I'd love to come on your podcast. That'd be great. Sounds good. Thanks, Ed. All right. Chuck Yates needs a job. Check it out. I will be back with more from the Ed Morrissey Show, so stay tuned.